failed to mention to uh, Ron that our grandson Seth is uh, very ill with uh, flu-like symptoms and not able to be here. And so let's remember Seth in our prayers. He uh, was starting it Friday night. He came over for dinner and wasn't feeling well. And this morning it's much worse than not, just not feeling well. So he's going to try to make it tonight, but I'm not sure that he, he will. We appreciate your prayers. Also, uh, just before, and I didn't get this to run, but uh, John said we could mention it later, but while it's on my mind, we'll add it to our announcements. John Barkley will have cataract surgery. I believe he said the 7th and the 21st of March. Is that right? Yeah, you have to do those two weeks apart, as some of us know who, who've had that. So um, let's uh, remember John uh, in our prayers as he faces that uh, surgery uh, as well. I hope you read the uh, bulletin articles, and um, if you have received your uh, bulletin, I wanted to call your attention especially because it ties in with our lesson today to the very excellent article by Steve Higginbotham uh, inside the bulletin, Can the Church Survive? And uh, I'm going to read it. It's not very long uh, by way of introducing our discussion this morning. Social injustice, homosexual marriage, divorce, cohabitation, adultery, premarital sex, pornography, abortion, casual drug use, the rejection of absolutes, the immorality of the entertainment industry are some of the things our culture embraces today. Can the church survive such moral degradation? Can it survive 21st century American culture or will it become a decaying relic of the past? Does the moral depravity of our culture threaten the very existence of the church today? Is it really possible for the church to find relevance in today's culture? The answer is an emphatic yes. And if we think otherwise, maybe we need to rethink a few matters regarding the kingdom of God. Whether we're talking about God's reign in such patriarchs as Noah, his reign in Old Testament Israel, or his reign in the church today, his people have always been situated in an immoral world. Did Noah and his family need a moral culture in order to be faithful to God? When Israel walked in the commandments of the Lord, was it because their surrounding culture was moral? What New Testament church was situated in a moral culture? And then he says, my point is, the success and future of the church is not and never has been in the hands of our culture but in our faithfulness to God and God's faithfulness to keep His promises. Do I like the growing momentum of immorality in our culture? Certainly not. But the success and relevance of the church is not tied to our culture. America can rise and fall, but God's church will remain. Isn't that what Daniel 2.44 teaches? We are part of an unshakable kingdom, Hebrews 12.28. Don't buy what the prophets of doom and gloom are selling. Don't allow the immorality of our culture to overwhelm, discourage, and defeat you. We are more than conquerors, Romans 8, 31 and 35 through 37. It's an excellent point that he makes, an excellent question that he asks, but it really is a question also that has its basis in, in Bible. It has its basis in one of the parables that Jesus taught as recorded in Matthew chapter 13 a chapter in which we find seven parables concerning the kingdom of God. All concerning the kingdom of God, which is the church. The kingdom and the church are one and the same. But in one of those parables, the only one 
that is not repeated, or one of the ones not repeated, it's only found in Matthew, I should say, the parable of the tares found only in Matthew, whereas other parables of Jesus are found in the various accounts of the gospel, the parable of the tares of the field is only recorded by Matthew. And it is one of two parables, the other being the parable of the sower, that Jesus gave an explanation for. So we really don't have to speculate at all, should not speculate, about what he was teaching in the parable of the tares. So open your Bibles and let's see how the parable of the tares relates to the article we included in the bulletin this week by our good brother Steve Higginbotham. In verse 24 of Matthew chapter 13, we have this parable of the tares. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, The servants said to them, or I'm sorry, while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now there's the parable of the tares of the field. But if you'll drop down to verse 36, we then read, Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The son of man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You know, that reminds us, that last statement of the purpose of, of the Lord's teaching in parables. It was fulfillment of prophecy, for one thing, that he taught in parables because the Old Testament prophesied of that. He also spoke in parables, and you remember that simple definition of parables, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. But more specifically, parable, parable, para beside and bole comes from the word from which we get our word ball. So we throw a ball beside a ball to throw beside. Literally, the Lord in teaching in parables was throwing beside the teaching an illustration that was very familiar to his hearers that would assist them in their understanding. 
if they needed that assistance based upon his teaching. Some, perhaps clearer than others, others he explained, as in this one. But he also taught in parables not only to embalm the truth or to make it live in the memories of those who heard it, just like good illustrations do today when we use those illustrations, hopefully they help to embalm the truth. His teaching in parables was also to conceal truth from those who would abuse it, who didn't have hearts that were receptive to the truth and might abuse the teaching that he gave and perhaps prematurely seek to kill him before his hour had come. And so the Lord's parables are precious indeed, and we need to appreciate them fully. And this is one that helps us to, to understand something that is of vital importance about the good and the evil in this world. And that is that it will always be the case that there will be evil in this world. That there will never be a time when the Lord is going to somehow remove all evil influences and all evil practices and all evil thoughts from this world. But for as long as time stands, for as long as we live, the church or the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew refers to the church here, is going to have to contend with an enemy, a very formidable enemy, a very powerful enemy, but an enemy who has already been overcome by the Christ and whom we can overcome through the Christ, that enemy being the devil. Jesus used an illustration here in the parable of the tares to remind us of some very important things. Discouragement. Discouragement is a very negative word, isn't it? A very destroying, destructive influence in our lives if we allow it to become so. There have been times in our classes and in lessons that we have discussed the news of the day, the developments of the day, some of the things to which Steve Higginbotham refers in this article, and we've talked about those things and lamented the direction that this country is going in many ways. The challenges that are faced in our educational uh, system. Janice was sharing with me just the other day uh, and printed off this Common Core curriculum Lisa Sizemore is familiar with it and very much opposed to it um, as a Christian, and we should be because of some of the sex education teaching in that Common Core curriculum that is absolutely unbelievable in terms of what they are teaching children at the ripe old age of what? What are you in the second grade? Eight years old? What are you in the fourth grade? And yet, I, I wouldn't even, I don't even want to share with you some of the things that they are proposing to teach as a part of this Common Core curriculum in terms of the sex education aspect of it in the public school system. Oh, yes, there is much about which we sh uh, should be concerned. But is it the case that the church of our Lord is going to survive? Is it the case that we should be so discouraged that we simply throw up our hands and, and uh, give up or become despondent? 
This parable has actually been called by some the parable of, of discouragement. But what the scripture reminds us of is that people can do right regardless of their surroundings. And Steve Higginbotham in the article reminds us of that. Noah and Enoch also as another one. He walked with God, Genesis 5, 24. And yet when you read uh, verses 14 or so, uh, verse 14, 14 and 15 of Jude, you see in his time just how evil men were, generally speaking, and yet Enoch walked with God. And so indeed, we need to be reminded that no matter what comes, we have an obligation, a responsibility, yes, a privilege to live in such a way as to do all that we can to uphold the good, promote the good, and to withstand the evil influences, and yet to do it as God would have us do. Think with me about some of the elements of this parable. In verse 37, in his explanation of the parable, Jesus tells us that he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. Who sowed that seed? The son of man. Why the reference to the son of man? Jesus often, often referred to himself as the son of man apparently to emphasize in that expression his humanity. The fact that he was not deity alone, but he became human. That the Word, the eternal Word, capital W, that was with God, that was God, that is God, became flesh and dwelt among us. That he was the Son of Man, born of a virgin that he can sympathize, that he can empathize with us completely, that he has been tempted in all points as we are, and yet without sin. He is our perfect mediator, our perfect high priest, because not only is he the Son of God, but he was willing to be the Son of Man that is born of a virgin to live upon this earth a sinless life and to die the most horrific death known to man at that time for you and for me and to shed his blood for the salvation of mankind. He sowed the good seed. Where? In the field. But what is the field? And that's an important aspect of this parable. There have been those who claim that this parable teaches the good and the bad that sometimes occurs in the church or in the kingdom. I don't believe so. I believe that thought by Jesus is reserved for the parable of the fishnet in this same 13th chapter of Matthew at verses 47 through 50. There's where he talks about the good and bad in the church and discusses that. But here he says the field into which this seed is sown is what? Not the church, but the field is the world. Therefore, when he gets ready to gather out of the world, and though he calls it the kingdom, that kingdom in this context refers to the world. And is it not the case that the world is, is the kingdom of Christ? I know the church is the kingdom, obviously, but is there no sense in which the world as a whole can be characterized as the kingdom of Christ? Remember Matthew 28, 18? When he came to the apostles, he came to them and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and where? On earth. On earth. And so there is a sense in which the world is the kingdom, but tragically, 
most of the world does not recognize their king. And so those in the church, the kingdom, are those who do recognize him as their king. But in this context, the kingdom is used in a sense in which it is not normally used, I believe, and that is to refer to the world because Jesus gives us the identity. Think about it. We don't have to speculate. He says the field is the world. Now, in this field, which is the world, you have two kingdoms in effect. In the kingdom of Christ, which is the world in this sense, another kingdom has sprung up alongside the good seeds who are the sons of the kingdom, that is, in the church, and that is the kingdom of Satan. The tares are the sons of the wicked one. Well, let me stop and ask this question. How did the Son of Man sow that good seed? How did you, if you're a Christian this morning, become a son or daughter in the kingdom? How did you become a part of the kingdom? Was it the Son of Man sowing in your heart some direct manifestation of His will to you in some miraculous direct way? No. It was through the Word, wasn't it? If you're a son or daughter in the kingdom today, you are so because you paid attention to and heeded and obeyed this Word. Now think about that in relation to the first parable that we find in Matthew chapter 13. The parable of the sower. Behold, a sower went forth to sow, and some of the seed fell on wayside soil, some on stony ground, thorny ground, but some in good soil, and it brought forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixtyfold, some a hundredfold. What was it that brought forth that fruit? The seed. Luke's account of the parable of the sower in Luke 8, 11 says, now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Now, couple that with what Jesus in his own word says here, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. How did he sow that good seed in the world? He sowed the good seed through the word. The parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Therefore, do I need something more than the word of God in order to become a son or daughter in the kingdom of God? No, this is all I need. And oh, how we wish the world as a whole, understood that and appreciated it. Oh, how we wish the religious world understood it. And yet they clamor for something in addition to this. Some better felt and told, direct operation of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus himself says the word is all-sufficient, all-powerful, it is that which is sown in the world, and being sown in the world, it is that which produces sons of the kingdom. That's all we need in order to be a son in the kingdom is the Word of God. But let me ask you this question in relation to that. Is the sowing time over because Jesus has gone back to the Father? He's not here. No. Is the Word still here? Yes. Is the world still here? Yes. Therefore, it's incumbent upon us as sons or daughters in the kingdom to do what? Keep sowing that seed in a world that will always have wickedness in it until the Lord comes again or until we die, whichever occurs first. That will never change. But what must also not change is our responsibility and the recognition of that responsibility, yea, that privilege, that exalted privilege of taking that word to this world and leading as many people as we possibly can out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom 
of God's dear Son. And so the Son of Man still wants the seed to be sown, even though he has left the world, but he wants us to sow the kingdom. In verse 39, we are reminded that Satan, Satan is the enemy. Satan is the enemy who has sown the tares. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. And he does it through so many of the things that this article mentions, adultery, premarital sex, pornography, abortion, casual drug use, the rejection of absolutes, the immorality of the entertainment industry, and on and on we go. That's the seed that the devil continues to sow. It's been mentioned, incidentally, that literally it was the case. Two cases were cited by Richard Trench in his notes on the parables of this actually being done two individuals who were upset with other individuals and sowed tares in their fields. In India, one account, and also in Ireland, I read of an account, where a tenant leaving the field and being upset because he was having to leave his field, before he left, he sowed all of the tares that he could something that looks like wheat but is definitely not wheat. And by the time it comes up, along with the crop, it's too late to separate it without damaging the wheat. So Jesus draws his lesson from something that was an actual occurrence among men who were, like the devil, evil in their intent and their purpose. And so then the question is asked then, well, what shall we do? What shall we do? The tares, they look so much like the wheat. No, he says, leave them. But as we think about the tares being like the wheat and not detected until it's too late to really separate them effectively without damaging the good crop, think about how Satan does that today, spiritually as far as the teaching of men is concerned. Does Satan use false religion, for example? Does Satan mingle with the error enough truth to make it indistinguishable to the undiscerning mind many times? Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And I think as you do, you get a very clear picture of the wheat and the tares figuratively and the application that can be made concerning them. Verse 12 of 2 Corinthians 11 beginning, But what I do I will also continue to do that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. He's talking about false teachers now. Paul is. Then verse 13, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, listen to it, for Satan himself transforms himself 
into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. That is an apt description of what is taking place today in the religious world, where the tares are being sown among the wheat, and where there is enough truth mingled in with the error to make it very difficult for individuals, if they are not diligent students, to distinguish between the truth and the error and to embrace the error. False religion tears among the wheat. Satan's perhaps most powerful tool is to get people to thinking that they're right spiritually when indeed their lives are not in harmony with the will of God. You see, there's something more than zeal that is crucial to pleasing God. And that reminds us of another point in the parable here where there were individuals who said, who said, why don't we, or do you want us to, uh, to root them up? That's back at verse 28 in the actual giving of the parable itself. What did they ask? Servants of the owner came, the servants, not the reapers now, the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? There's zeal there on the part of the servants. But zeal without knowledge. The response from the owner, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Zeal without knowledge. What a tragic and dangerous thing it is. In John 16, 2, Jesus told the apostles, there are some of you who will kill you, and when they kill you, they will believe they are doing the service of God. He warned his followers this was coming. You look at Acts chapter 7 and what do you see? A demonstration of that very prediction that Jesus made with the first Christian martyr, Stephen, who stood before the Sanhedrin and spoke nothing but truth. And they gnashed their teeth and they took him out and they stoned him. And when they did, they believed they were doing God's service. Religion cannot be advanced with the sword but it must be advanced with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Have there been any crusades, any religious movements in times past where religion has sought to be advanced with the sword? Well, of course, yes. But our weapons, the weapons of our warfare, Paul reminds us, are not carnal. Spiritual weapons and zeal without knowledge can be dangerous, if not ultimately and completely destructive. Well, you remember in Luke chapter 9, verse 54, when Jesus had set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he was to go through a village in Samaria, and because he was going to Jerusalem, the Samaritans who hated the Jews rejected him there, and James and John said what? You want us to bring down fire from heaven and 
take care of these people right here on the spot. And Jesus, of course, did not allow it. Even his own disciples at times demonstrated zeal without knowledge. But what the servants are to do is to continue to sow the seed, recognizing that the Lord himself will take care of the separation at the appropriate time. And the angels will be the reapers. And when will that occur? As we have just read, at the end of the world. At the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first, gather together the tares, bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat in my barn. Two different times spoken of there, right? No. One time. One time when the reapers will come and do what? Punish the wicked after the judgment and reward the righteous. One general resurrection of all the dead. Not some rapture where the righteous are raptured and then seven years later after a great tribulation, then the Lord comes again. No, one resurrection of all the dead, one judgment, one punishment for some, one reward for the others. The hour comes in which all who are in the graves, John 5, 29, Jesus said, will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. The angels will be involved in that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Reminds us of this process that Jesus mentions in the parable. Verse 7, And to give to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. That's the very time of which Jesus is speaking in this parable. With his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day, that day, to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe. Because our testimony among you was believed. Do you believe the testimony? Do you believe what Jesus taught and explained so clearly in the parable of the tares of the field and what is clearly and elsewhere reinforced and taught? If so, then what should we be doing as we await that time? We should not be seeking to prematurely alleviate all the wicked from the good, it'll never happen until the end of time. Should we be overly discouraged by that reality? No. But we should be sufficiently challenged to keep sowing the seed of the kingdom and to make as many sons of the kingdom as we can through their obedience to the gospel of Christ so that when he does come in flaming fire with his mighty angels taking vengeance on those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of Christ. That we're not among them and that we've done all we can to keep as many people as possible from being among that number, but to help them to become sons and daughters, children of the kingdom, the seeds of the kingdom. How so? By obedience to the seed of the kingdom, which is the word of God. What does that seed, the word of God, tell you to do? to be in the kingdom. It tells you to believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God or die in your sins, John 8, 24. Jesus said, unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. 
But belief alone is not sufficient. We must repent of our sins, that is, change our mind and then change our lives in accordance with that change of mind. I tell you no, Jesus said, but unless you repent, change your mind, change your life, you will all likewise perish. But then the Lord made it clear we must sweeten our lips with the greatest confession that has ever been made or ever will be made before mankind and before the God of heaven. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's the confession he wants to hear and wants us to make. And then he wants us to follow through with that confession by a submission in water. The baptism that places us into Christ because it's in that burial that the blood is applied. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. Mark 16, 16. The word that I have just spoken from this book, the seed of the kingdom, puts you into the kingdom. If you're not there, we plead with you to obey that word. And if you have been, but you know you're not there now, as a faithful member of that kingdom, but you have allowed the world to discourage you. You have allowed the world to distract you. You have allowed the world to destroy your faith. Please come home in repentance and confession of any sin that needs to be confessed publicly that we may pray with you and for you to the God who loves you and who will forgive you and restore you to your first love as a precious son or daughter in the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we stand to sing, we encourage you to come.